Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Let's talk about uh, not only what's going on in in uh, Ukraine, but the overarching issue, and we've been hearing about this from first from Putin and now from his, his advisors, and that is uh, they keep rattling the... Uh, The nuclear weapons saber, Russia's deputy foreign minister this week spoke of uh, catastrophic consequences if the West continues to arm Ukraine with the objective of seeing Russia defeated. Should the world consider Putin and his regime's repeated reference to the use of nuclear weapons as a real threat? That's one of the uh, questions that we need to ask. Professor Sean Maloney joins us, professor of history at the Royal Military College. He served as the historical advisor to the chief of land staff during the war in Afghanistan. The professor is also the first Canadian civilian military historian to go into combat since the Second World War. He's an expert on the issue of nuclear weapons and the author of many books, including Emergency War Plan, The American Doomsday Machine. Professor Maloney, thanks very much for joining us. How are you? Hey, it's good to be back. Yeah. Well, yeah, you were with us uh, a couple of months ago, last year. So you have on-the-ground experience in Afghanistan during this uh, U.S.-led military invention, which involved Canada, of course. And you have a likely better than almost anyone understanding of of uh, Al Qaeda. You've been an advisor to Canadian military commanders, and uh, so based on your f- firsthand knowledge of warfare and your perspective as a war historian, I start with this: How would you describe what's happening before we get to the nuclear weapons issue? How would you yeah. describe what's happening in Ukraine right now? Yeah, uh, the regime is trying to generate what we call the frozen conflict. They want to try and freeze everything in place develop peace talks, have discussions so they can hold on to what they've got so they can rebuild, rearm, and then at some point in the future come back at Ukraine. They've done this before already, obviously, from 2014 to 2021, 22. So their, their objective is to not lose uh, and to hold on to whatever they've got. At the same time, they keep trying to generate, there's a lot of terms for it, hybrid warfare, gray zone warfare, there's a whole bunch of names for it. The idea we can, they can disrupt countries using cyber, using political warfare, media, information ops. Okay, So that's all designed to keep everybody on the back heel as much as possible. Okay. So that's where we're at right now. Does the Russian invasion of Ukraine complicate other issues globally, potentially, like India and Pakistan, for example? Hmm. I, I, I would look at the the whole conflict in Ukraine and the confrontation between uh, Russia and and the West as having large implications, not only on the military side, but economically, socially, etc. It, it's like dropping a stone into a into a pond, right? So uh, the issue here is if people hadn't stood up to this, then others would be emboldened to do similar things elsewhere. There's no doubt about that. So, so your book, American War Plan, the American Doomsday Machine, uh, I want to ask you this question. Uh, when Putin rattles the nuclear sabers, what happens within the United States military's nuclear weapons group? What goes on in the United States when Putin or his foreign minister start talking about catastrophic consequences? And don't forget, we have nukes. Uh, you, got, you, can't, you, have to, you can't separate what they're saying from what they're doing. So if they're saying something and they're not backing it up with... Uh, maneuvers of nuclear forces, then generally it's talk or it's designed to support some other initiative they've got going. 
Um, if they're if they're making those threats and they're actually maneuvering nuclear forces, then that's when it becomes a bit of a a bit of a problem. So, but yeah, they'll, they, the U.S. and the French and the British remember they have nuclear weapons too. Keep a very close eye on what the other what the other side is doing at all times. And I've been watching them myself since back going back to 2021 in this crisis and before that. So. When they maneuver things, sometimes it's designed to backstop something else they're doing, i.e. they're indicating they're serious. It could be used to underscore some diplomatic move they're making. Um, but what's really interesting is they keep making these threats in various forms over a year. And it, 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 they're, they're, it's like crying wolf. It's, it's, a real, it's really interesting to watch this. It's nothing, this is unprecedented even from the Cold War. The duration of this, the types of threats... Uh, the way they convey the threats, they'll have Dmitry Kiselyev and other people in the media talk about it. They'll have Dmitry Medvedev talk about it. You, you, so what are they trying to do? Well, what they're basically trying to do is they're trying to stir up uh, people in the West to be afraid of what's going on. So this is essentially what we would call information warfare. So whenever you see in the mainstream media a blip of people getting upset about getting nuked, and you've seen that probably three or four times over the past year, Right. Yes. That'll be augmented with uh, social media. They'll put up uh, footage of their nuclear system being manipulated. They'll let us know what they're doing. Uh, but it is designed to generate fear, dismay and defeatism within our civilian populations. OK, this isn't it, it's a very multimedia approach. It's it's an influence activity. It's designed for them to get to get what they want. It's not separate from the other things they're doing. Can you envision a scenario which would see the Russians use so-called battlefield nuclear weapons in this war with Ukraine? Well, we actually did earlier last year a couple of times. We took a look at, me and some friends of mine, um, took a look at what they could gain from doing so, what they lose from doing so. We looked at chem as well. Um, and in this case, there's a couple of situations they've been in. It's been utterly catastrophic for them. Kharkiv offensive is one. Um, and there are others, uh, including direct attacks against their air bases inside Russia itself. So if they haven't used anything along those lines, they're probably being deterred from doing so, either internally or by external forces or both. So uh, in this case, they've maneuvered things around to try to indicate they're serious, and then they don't do it. So obviously something's happening on our side. Uh, whereby the, they're being deterred. And I can see that stuff being maneuvered as, around, especially with the Brits and the French will let people know they're doing things. The Americans, you can see stuff go, moving around. So that's what's happening in the background, everything that's going on. But what they want, they want fear to be generated within our civilian populations to, to get put, put pressure on the governments to back off supporting Ukraine. That's what this is all about. So... Um... Well, a lot of people have asked this question. I, I can't answer it, but I know you can. What exactly is a battlefield nuke? What does it do? How how potent is it? What what I mean? How much damage does it do? Okay, this is this is this gets really technical. But in, in the old days of the Cold War, um, there was no distinction between we nuclear weapons types in the 1950s. Okay, and some people tried to delineate it by yield. And yield, we're talking multi-megaton weapons that can erase a city. Versus smaller weapons in the kiloton yield that can have a more limited local effect. Some people started calling those tactical and strategic weapons, but that never made sense because if you could use a smaller yield weapon to generate a strategic effect, then 
then what do you call it? So the term battlefield weapons tends to be uh, weapons that can have an impact on fighting on the ground itself, as opposed to being flung back and forth over the pole and delivered by bombers, that sort of thing. Um, I, I would suggest anything under 10 kilotons is, would, would be a battlefield nuclear weapon, but you can have even ones that are even fraction of a kiloton. So, um, and what we're talking about here specifically in Ukraine, the things that I was watching the move around, or thought think I saw them moving around, um, they have artillery shells that can yield between one and 10 kilotons. And then, you can, in theory, you can use those in particular ways in the battlefield to make up for the lack of another capability. But the problem is, you cross that line, um, then you've crossed the line you can't go can't back away from, and they know that. So if you use one, you might as well use 10. If you use 10, you might as well use 100. And then if you use 100, then all of a sudden you're dealing with the strategic stuff happening. So they've obviously done the calculation and realized that the, the benefit is uh, not there, given what the cost is, and that's the fundamentals of deterrence. It's quite, quite amazing. Uh, the calculations that go into it and the disinformation and the manipulation of civilian populations. I watch it all the time, and... I mean, I'll get, I get people get, getting getting hold of me all the time. Like, Dr. Maloney, are we going to get nuked and die? I'm like, maybe, but maybe not. <laughs> they want something definite. I can't do that. Um, yeah. but, uh, or, or are we going to die? Like, yeah, you're going to die, just not from nuclear warfare. No, that's uh, encouraging. The thing is, for us, our, the Canadian problem is a bit different because they're not going to blow away our cities. They're going to go after anything that can support nuclear operations, any, any 10,000-foot runway probably. Um, they would probably use EMP, electromagnetic pulse, to screw up all of our computing systems, electronics. I mean, that puts us back into the 19th century anyway. I mean, do you want to be in the 19th century or do you want to be in the 16th century? Which is better, right? I have no idea. I, I, it, it just, I have to think about that one. But yeah. I hear what you're saying. The, the, if, if they do uh, cut loose with an EMP, then our technology is done. Well, look, North Korea can do that. It doesn't have to yeah, be I guess. Yeah. Sure, China. I mean, North Korea has has the capability of doing that. So that's one of the reasons everybody's really concerned about little North Korea having even a small number of weapons. And we all know it, those of us that study this stuff. There's a lot of people, I remember writing somebody high up and said, you know, we figured out how we're going to mitigate the effects of this. And I got this, like, uh, letter back from on high from written by a staffer half my age saying, yeah, we're going to spend an additional $5 on NORAD, you know. It, 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 I really got concerned that people weren't considering this, but then our whole society has never, hasn't considered this stuff really since the Cold War. Professor Maloney, is it more challenging today? Is the world more um, challenging from the perspective of the presence of and potential use of nuclear weapons today than it was during the Cold War? And I remember in 1962 being a rookie in high school and... Uh, and being warned about uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and being told what we should do in case the nukes started to fly. Uh, which time is more, more challenging? Oh, I'd say our, our current time is more challenging. There's more ambiguity. Um, there's more fear. There's more knowledge among the po amongst the population and by our adversaries of how societies operate. Um, I'd say our, our period is extremely complex. I'm not saying the Cold War itself was simple. It was a system unto itself that was dangerous at particular points in time. There's no doubt about that. Cuba was one of them, but it was only one of several. Uh, and most, uh, unless somebody's really studied this in depth, there are, are other crises where nuclear weapons use was possible that generally uh, aren't studied too much by the general public. But everybody, Cuba's the go-to because it's really dramatic. 
it's really public, uh, and it's really dangerous. So, but I'd say we've got our own problems now. Where things are complex in our own way, and it requires our populations to know more uh, about how the world works than I think that they do. And this we're back to education, right? I mean, how much of this is taught in school? We have to. Nobody really explains how the world system operates right now because we're still working through it. Um, but the Cold War does have a lot of lessons for us, uh, particularly with deterrence, because deterrence works. We've watched it work continuously, uh, at least for a 42-year period. And there's a lot of debate about this. I've got colleagues that disagree with me on this, but it's one of the reasons I wrote Emergency War Plan was to take a look at it again. And another book I did called Deconstructing Dr. Strangelove, which partly deals with the Cuban Missile Crisis. So um, there are ways that which deterrence works, but they're usually not seen by the public. It's usually in the Arctic, or it's, it's like Hunt for October under the ocean, or, or it's in uh, d deep bunkers somewhere. So, uh, But there are things that do go on that the public generally doesn't see. In Canada particularly, we've moved our air defense forces numerous times up into the Arctic to keep an eye on what the Russians are doing up there with bombers. The problem is, is that you've got commentators that just say, oh, it's just an exercise, or it doesn't matter, or they do this all the time, or whatever. And it's more serious than that. They have, we have to keep an eye on them. Here's one for you. I mean, people generally don't know this, but in March 2021, Russia put three ballistic missile submarines through the Arctic ice. And I calculated they carried about 400 nuclear weapons. Whoa. They did it, and they filmed it so we could see it. They, sent, they made sure that everybody could see that. And not, that never showed up in Canadian media at all. And that's probably because... Um, the Canadian government chose not to get nuclear submarines, so somebody else has to do that up in the Arctic. That's the Americans and the British. So the Americans and British do defense for us up in the north, and that's not palatable to people I mean, one way or another. So that's why we're part of coalitions, right? Yeah. So, so when the Russians, or Putin, pulled Russia temporarily anyway out of the START treaty, Yep. Um, how significant was that? Was that just for show, or is that that's, is there substance actually, to that? That's actually very significant. So basically what START does, it gives a limit in the number of weapons that can be deployed, and there's a mechanism to count them and, and, and verify that. Okay, What this means, and we got to go back to the basis of deterrence, and basis of deterrence is what we call target coverage. You have to have enough weapons to hit the things that you want to hit and let the other side see that so the deterrence works. So in this case, it's pretty clear that they don't have enough weapons to do target coverage the way they want to do it, and they want to expand the number of weapons they've got. Now, that's really interesting, because the only country that's expanding its nuclear arsenal right now is, is uh, People's Republic of China. So there's a little, uh, maybe that relationship is not as tight as people think that it is. Um, so, but target coverage that you have, now here's the other important thing. Uh, when we're dealing with Russian technology, it's not necessarily as reliable. So from the research I did, um, they would double and sometimes triple the number of weapons going onto a target just to make sure they kill it, right? Because the, there's a calculation. The, the missile has to leave its silo and operate. It has to get up into space and dispense its nukes up there. The weapons have to come through the atmosphere there, and then they have to detonate over the target. You do a calculation, the probability of kill like that, and... If the technology is suspect, they're going to double and triple the number of weapons that they're going to be firing at something. So they want more weapons. Get it? Yeah, I do. We we have less than a minute here. Um, I wish we had more. But should we uh, should we start to worry now? Should there is, is there is there cause to be concerned? Or do we do we need just more information? 
Well, I think the deterrent system's working, and and people need to really understand that. There's a lot of people that don't want to understand that. They'd rather be afraid uh, rather than taking the time to figure this stuff out, which is their choice. But uh, in this case, that, that system's not going away anytime soon. And we're part of it with NORAD. We're, that is integrated into all of this. Canada is not neutral. Canada is not separate from this. And we can't, we can't become neutral at all. We are, why would we? We are under that umbrella. Right. Whether the people up, up top want to recognize that or not okay. in policy. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.